Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports, and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyze each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. It's the final scene of almost every horror movie. All of the main characters are dead. They've been executed. In the nightmare that is the real story of Whiskey Creek, even the dogs, including puppies, aren't spared. Only the survivor, injured, desperate, clinging to life, manages against all odds miraculously to emerge from the bloodshed alive. The survivor is key to the story being told and to the perpetrators being brought to justice. In the movies, if you're the survivor of a mass murder, you live to tell the story. But that's not what is happening in this case. At least, not yet. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Whiskey Creek, Island Crime Season 5. Up until this point, we've talked about all of the victims except for one, our survivor. That's what we'll be getting into in this episode. The Whiskey Creek survivor has never been publicly named. I now know who he is. He is a young Indigenous man in his 20s. For his safety and the safety of those who love him, I won't be using his name. We will simply call him The Survivor. I've had multiple conversations now with the source close to this young man. There are people close to them that would prefer they not speak with me. Once, while we talk on the phone, I can hear their partner pleading with them not to carry on the conversation. Sharing this perspective with me is incredibly brave. And once you hear their story, you'll understand why. This is not an anonymous source to me. I know who they are, and I'm confident they have direct knowledge of the survivor. And they will remain a confidential source. I've altered their voice to protect them. I asked my source to take me back to when they first heard about the shootings at Whiskey Creek. I was driving down Island Highway and I heard it. And as soon as I heard it, I knew I was involved. Immediately, they race to the police station. Then I went to the police station right away. They took me into a back room. Uh, they didn't give, I knew nothing. I didn't know if I was dead or alive. Imagine thinking your loved one could well have been a victim of a massacre, not knowing if they have survived or not. For hours, you wait for news, any news, and your heart and mind fill with memories. 
I first started calling this young man the survivor because he was the only victim who made it out of Whiskey Creek alive. But as I continue to follow his story, I've come to realize that Survivor was a fitting name long before that Halloween night. When he was a little kid, his favorite song was uh, Zippity Doodah. <laughs> okay. What <laughs> a really, really nice boy. He's a kind kid and gifted in many ways. He was very, very, very talented in sports. Not only was he talented in sports, like he could he could snowboard and ski and swim. Could pick up any instrument and within a few minutes play it. A guitar, piano, drums, all that stuff. He was very, very, he had listened to a song within the day he would play it. His defining characteristic is goodness. And he was very, very, very sweet. Probably the sweetest, kindest, softest person you would ever have met. And in the early years, it would have seemed like he could have had a charmed life. He had a very good life. They had a very, very nice upbringing. They had a beautiful home and they had beautiful everything. But the boy's pleasant home and sunny disposition mask a hurt. His early life is marked by trauma. The survivor is a twin. The twins were born in British Columbia's Okanagan area and adopted as babies. Their birth mom dies of an overdose. Their adoptive parents try to give the twins a good life. But when he is just seven years old, the survivor witnesses his adoptive father's sudden death. The pain, the hurt, caused the survivor to have trouble. Trouble fitting in. He withdraws. Was always picked on. Always picked on. Was a, a loner. Liked to be with me. He didn't really like to be with anybody else. He liked me. He was a pleaser. That was his personality. So people would pick on him because of that. He gets counseling, but struggles in school. He'd give people anything he got, he'd give it away, and they would take it. He would go without stuff. He, he always wanted to feel light. And before too long... Anything to fit in. That's when he started doing drugs, just to fit in. Then, at just 13 years old, he attempts to take his own life. I asked my source why the survivor was at Sean McGrath's encampment that Halloween night, and what happens to him after the shooting. He never really lived there. He just went there when Sean would take him, and he had stayed. Like Tyler, it seems the survivor is working for Sean in exchange for drugs. He had some... Um you know, drugs for him, and he had to come and work for it, so would go, of course. Like, uh, cut wood, or clean his house, or drive a car, and had no license, but drive a car, and then would work for a couple of days or whatever it was, and I would be looking for him frantic, of course, and then he would work for Sean, and then, of course, Sean, this source is one of the few I've spoken with who actually met Sean McGrath a number of times. Actually, I found out that Sean was quite scared of me. He was scared of you. 
Yeah. Why? I don't know. Everybody told me that. It was because I was never afraid of him. I would just approach him, like, you know, leave him alone. Tell me about that. What what was what were those encounters like? Um, well, you know, he put his best foot forward, of course, and he was just a mouse. He was just a mouse. He was just a nothing. Uh, I was never afraid of him. Uh, he would tell me what I wanted to hear, of course. This is remarkable. Most everyone I've talked to describes Sean as scary, a menace, not a mouse. I'm getting closer to talking to Sean's father. I'm hoping he will help me understand more about his son. I'm determined to learn more about this man. Perspective really is everything, and things are rarely black and white. Those who love the survivor are relieved to learn he didn't die with Sean and the others. It is four long days before they learn that the survivor is recovering in a hospital in Victoria, hours away from his family. And the relief they felt earlier quickly gives way to questions. After I found out he was alive, and I was happy about that, of course, and then when I kind of walked away and grabbed that for a few minutes, I thought, well, hang on a second. Is he on life support? Is he burnt? Is he an amputee? Brain damage? They gave me nothing. Nothing. And I'm telling you, nothing. It was just phoning and phoning and nagging, and their only concern was me giving them information. The police confirm what those close to the survivor suspected. They basically told me the same thing, that he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And the consequences for our survivor prove nearly fatal. He was shot three times. He was shot in, uh, he was shot in the neck, and then he was shot under the armpit. I've seen pictures of this young man taken in the hospital after the shooting. In the pictures, I can see his lean back. There's a fresh incision on his neck near his shoulder and a foot-long suture up his spine. My source believes the survivor was passed out, stoned, when the attack took place. And for once, that might have been a good thing. He was laying there. They shot him. They thought he was dead. Once the killer or killers leave, the survivor makes his escape. When they left the scene, they thought he was dead and he jumped out of a window. The window leads to a makeshift shelter the survivor has built. I love to build things like caves and all that kind of stuff. And from the grace of God, for some reason, he just happened to build some sort of a shelter thing and he jumped into it. Investigators are anxious to learn what the survivor knows about the incident and what those close to him may also know. I met them in a car down at the ocean and I sat in a, like a SUV or whatever and they asked me questions about, about Sean and Dantra. Well, they also told me he wasn't cooperating, that he um, didn't give enough information so in that case they couldn't protect him. That was more than two years ago. I'm told the survivor no longer lives on the island. 
but he wants to return. He left me a message on my phone basically saying, I don't want to live on the streets anymore and I need help. The survivor misses his twin. They are incredibly close. And he doesn't care, as I told you before, he doesn't care if it means he loses his life. The survivor needs support, but my source believes it's safer for him to stay away until those responsible for the attack are behind bars. I gave him money to leave. I took him to Walmart, I bought him clothes, because I've been told he should not be here. My source has shared a lot with me, but at this point, hasn't confided who has told her the survivor mustn't return to the island. The person or people who did this are still out there. And even if the police do make an arrest, the survivor and those around him aren't convinced it would protect them. You know, they'll be out on parole or they'll be out for a court hearing and it takes forever for a court hearing. And then they walk the streets and, and then they get beat up and I just, I just can't do it. I cannot, I don't trust it. I can't do it. The way I look at it is they'll carry on, you know, the police will carry on, of course, and it'll just be another case for them, another whatever. But with me, it'll be um, a lifetime. Were Tyler and the survivor unplanned casualties in a targeted hit against Sean McGrath? If Sean McGrath was targeted, as everyone seems to believe, was that because he hurt someone, because he stole something, or because he and the other campers had crossed a line? These are questions I return to over and over again. The answers could form a motive for the Whiskey Creek killings. Those close to the survivor and Tyler tell me they tried to get these young men away from Whiskey Creek. Away from the violence, the drug use, the unstable, unsafe environment. But others I've spoken with have described another side to the Whiskey Creek encampment. A place where one camper had created a lovely little home surrounded by plants and statues of fairies. I want to learn as much as I can about the Whiskey Creek victims, all of them. Shanda Atkinson, also known as Shanda Wilson, was Sean McGrath's girlfriend. Shanda's family have not yet agreed to speak with me about her. But while I'm out in the community on another interview, I meet a woman who knew Shanda. So I take the opportunity to find out what she knows about this victim of the Whiskey Creek murders. My name is Susan Grondel. And Susan, we were just chatting and you mentioned that you knew Shanda. Yes. And I'm just wondering if you can tell me a little bit about her. Shanda was a very, um, she loved makeup. She loved clothes. She was a Carrie at Stanford in, in Parksville. When I met her, she was just everything. She was a great girl. You know? Susan tells me Shanda was a mom, 
though I've been told no children were living out at Whiskey Creek, so it seems she is not parenting any of her kids at the time of her death. I also learn that she and Sean McGrath were in a long-term relationship. She lived in the very beginning. I think that's sort of how Sean and her met. My girlfriend owned the house, and Shanda rented out the basement suite, and she was the LPN, and... So then Shanda and Sean ended up moving in the basement suite. Were, were they together for a while? Yes, years. So years before they ended up living together out at Whiskey Creek? Yeah, oh yeah. Normally, I learn about the victims of crime from their families and their closest friends. That's not the case here. Those closest to Shanda have chosen not to speak about her passing. And there are all kinds of reasons people choose not to talk in these circumstances. So I want to be clear, my knowledge of Shanda and her life before the Whiskey Creek killings is thin. Shanda was um, with myself. She was always very, like, smiled. She was very nice. She had a very jealous streak. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, she was a good worker when I knew her. She she was a she was a nice person. She had uh, she had friends, girls girl, girls loved her. Girlfriends loved her. Her special girlfriends. Like Tyler, I learned Shanda is also a dog lover. You know, loved loved animals. They had puppies, and just she'd stay up and feed them and nurse like bottles. Loved puppies. They had a whole litter of puppies, and I think they gave two away and kept the rest. (laughs) She tells me it is her belief that Shanda, like Tyler and the survivor, was collateral damage in a targeted shooting aimed at Sean McGrath. And she has no reason to think Shanda herself would have been the target. The last time you saw her, what what do you remember about that? How was she doing? The last time I saw her, she was all right. She would get frustrated and frustrated and that with her boyfriend, which was normal. I actually saw them up at La in there where they were living. Sometimes there's a lot of people there, sometimes there wasn't. You know, they kind of had a neat layout, how it was. At Whiskey Creek? Mm-hmm. So did you say you were up there? Yeah, I was up there a couple times. I'm grateful even for these small glimpses into the life of the late Shanda Atkinson. No one's talked about her. Oh you know, no, Shanda was nice. She was, you know what? I've always, I always got along with her. It was just, yeah, it was, it was tragic, you know. As I say goodbye, she echoes a point of view I've heard over and over again. Surprise, shock, really, that this kind of thing has happened so close to pretty little Qualicum Beach. And in Qualicum Beach, mm-hmm. Qualicum Beach, I lived there like I'm like for almost my whole life, mm-hmm. and it's it's just unheard of. Shanda, Sean, and Tyler are gone, but the survivor still has a chance at life. So far, more than two years after the Whiskey Creek massacre, life for the survivor is filled with fear. Fear that what he knows could get him and those close to him killed. 
you asked me a question and it has stuck with me. You said, how does this affect you? I gotta be honest with you, it is non-stop. From the minute I go to bed to the minute I get up, it is non-stop. And as I speak to you right now, I'm afraid coming back and I'm afraid for him. And I'm afraid, I'm afraid for myself. I head back across the island, thinking about the Whiskey Creek encampment. I'm learning it wasn't just home to the people you've heard described up till now. It seems Sean's sister, Tina, also lived there. And there were others who spent time in and out of the encampment as well. Up until this point, we've talked mainly about the victims of the shooting. But there's another victim that could be connected. We were in disbelief like that it happened, but we were also in agreement that it was bound to happen. Bound that she was going to either die in this lifestyle she was living or something horrible, you know, besides death would happen to her because, uh, yeah, Kiana was living quite a dangerous lifestyle for some years. That's next time. If you have information about the Whiskey Creek murders, please call the Vancouver Island Integrated Major Crime Unit's tip and information line at 250-380-6211. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Whiskey Creek, Island Crime, Season 5. My wristwatch is broken. My shoes are untied Time is a-ticking And so is the tide But I am not worried Things are what they are Come rain or come shine Or a shooting star I've been to the south into the north, east and the west, the middle of course. I may have been astray, but I've never been lost. Never been beat by the road I've crossed. I guess I've been lucky to some degree. For someone who ate all the food from the tree The stars been aligned And my goose hanging high I'll be okay in the sweet by and by I was born at morning on the first day of June Some degree 
It's Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. I'm here to tell you how to get ad-free content and early access to episodes right now. All you need to do is subscribe to Island Crime Plus on Apple Podcasts. When you subscribe, you get to be first to hear new episodes. All ad-free. Pop down into the show notes for a direct link to subscribe. If you like Island Crime, you'll love Island Crime Plus. Plus.